to the Mind and Matter podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Moses Chow. Dr. Chow is a professor at the New York University School of Medicine, and his laboratory is interested in how the environment, neuronal activity, inflammation, injury, and disease affect the nervous system. In particular, they look at the mechanisms and the molecules that react to these challenges, and they study the peripheral nervous system quite a bit, the components of our nervous system that exist outside of the brain and the spinal cord. The peripheral nervous system is also the subject of his new book called Periphery, How Your Nervous System Predicts and Protects Against Disease. And we talked a lot about topics related to the peripheral nervous system, uh, what it is and how it's different from the central nervous system, from the brain and spinal cord. We talked about things like the gut and gut health, things like the enteric nervous system, which is the uh, nervous system where the neurons are innervating our gut. Um, They help move food through our GI tract. They interact with our microbiome, and they have these kind of visceral functions. We talked about things like pain sensation. How is pain sensed by the peripheral nervous system? What are some of the key proteins? involved that sense different types of painful stimuli, such as hot things or mechanical stimulation. We talked about some of the cells of the peripheral nervous system and how they differ from those in the central nervous system. And we talked about things like exercise and neuroplasticity and diet. We talked about how things like exercise or exposure to novel environments can induce changes in both the peripheral and central nervous systems to promote things like neuroplasticity and some of the key molecules involved in those types of things. So if you're interested in in neuroscience, and if you're interested in the peripheral nervous system, things like um, how cranial nerves innervate our organs, how the nervous system of the gut, the enteric nervous system works, and what we're learning about it, how exercise and neuroplasticity tie into these things, this will be a really interesting episode for you. As always, don't forget to check out my Substack, mindandmatter.substack.com, for all of the podcast episodes in video and audio formats, and for my long-form science writing and free weekly newsletter. Don't forget to share your favorite episodes with family, and friends. And if you want to support the podcast further, please check out the links I have in the episode description. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Moses Chow. Thank you for having me on this podcast. Yeah, can you- 
you start off by just telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what kind of science your lab does? Sure. I'm a professor at uh, New York University Medical Center, and I've been here uh, over 20 years now. I'm in the Department of Cell Biology, Neuroscience, and also Psychiatry. And uh, my interests are in studying uh, trophic factors in the nervous system. And you've got a new book. Can you give everyone just a brief description of, you know, what's the book called and, and what, it, what it's about at a very high level? Sure. The book is about the peripheral nervous system. Uh, as many of you know, the brain and the spinal cord are, are the central parts of the nervous system, but there's also a peripheral nervous system that hits uh, the rest of the body. And uh, there hasn't been much written in the popular press about this nervous system, but it's very important in sensing uh, many things, sound, touch, smell, taste. And these signals, this information is uh, taken to the central nervous system. So it's a very important uh, part of how we uh, process information. And so I wrote the book partly to uh, give people information about the periphery and also um, to aim the book at the popular or general public. So it's not a textbook. It wasn't meant to be a, a, a science book per se, but it's meant to uh, tell people what's important about the periphery. And what exactly is the difference between, or, or where's the line between the peripheral and the central nervous system? Are there anatomical or physiological barriers or distinctions between them that make it very clear when something is part of the periphery versus the CNS? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, in fact, uh, many of us get confused sometimes. So we, we make a demarcation between the central and the peripheral nervous system by saying that everything outside the brain and the spinal cord is part of the peripheral nervous system. But that's a little confusing because the peripheral nervous system uh, interacts or makes contact with the central nerves. So there's a, there's a blurring of what's really central and what's peripheral. But in, in any case, the usual definition is outside of the brain and spinal cord uh, exists a network of nerves that are called the peripheral nervous system. And uh, if you want to get more detailed, the peripheral nervous system includes sensory neurons as well as uh, autonomic neurons. And uh, this system also can be subdivided into the sympathetic and parasympathetic uh, peripheral nerves. And there's a third uh, component, which is the enteric nervous system, which covers uh, the intestine uh, and the and and the gut, so it's a it's a complicated system that hits all the organs, and uh, again is outside of the brain and the spinal cord. I see. So it sounds like you've got neurons that live entirely inside the brain or the spinal cord. You've got neurons that live entirely outside of those places. But then there's also you know nerves that. I think have their cell bodies inside the central nervous system, but reach outside of it to the periphery sure. and, and are sort of the, that's where the lines get blurry, right? 
That's right. And many of you know that there are cranial nerves that are considered uh, in the central nervous system, but they um, they go to many targets outside the brain. So that's why it's it can be confusing. And so you said, and, and many people have heard these terms, you can break down um, components of of the nervous system into things like the sympathetic versus parasympathetic nervous system. So what are those things functionally? And, and also like, is there, is there like a physical or anatomical distinction there? There is. Um, so the, the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems um, often oppose each other in, in what they do in terms of uh, regulating uh, heart rate uh, digestion and many processes in the periphery. Uh, the autonomic nervous system, which includes all these systems, um, is not looked at very often because it it happens automatically. You don't you don't know that the autonomic system is working. Um, so it's 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 not been studied as much uh, recently than it was in the past. There's a lot of interest in the enteric nervous system because that's where bacteria, the microbiome resides. And uh, many people are interested in how bacteria in the gut may be influencing your behavior uh, and events that happen in the in the brain. So uh, there are many different uh, processes that go on. And where there's a defect in the peripheral nervous system, that can affect many things, temperature regulation, of course, digestion, uh, how you perspire, uh, if you have difficulty standing or breathing, if you have fatigue, that may be a function of the peripheral nervous system. And, you know, I've, I've spoken a lot on this podcast to um, evolutionary biologists or people who think of their particular field of study in evolutionary terms, um, because I think that's really important for understanding, you know, how and why things are set up the way they are in the body. Um, and I think you you kind of do that in the book. In fact, the the first chapter is called the first system. It had a really fun uh, first sentence, which read, "In the beginning, there was a worm." And I think that chapter is sort of about the, the evolution of the nervous system. And so why is that the first chapter and why did you start it out this way? It didn't start out originally like that, um, but it became a, sort of a good introduction to the system because it turns out very early during evolution, and that's why the worm comes in, we had a nervous system in many of these uh, organisms and that nervous system consisted of a cluster of nerve cells that are grouped together. And that was not a brain, but it was it was a forerunner of the peripheral nervous system, that is clusters of neurons that we, that we call ganglia. Now, the brain is a much, much bigger uh, organization, uh, and it has uh, billions of, of nerve cells packed together. So in the beginning, uh, simple organisms uh, did not have uh, a spine or a, a, a spinal cord, and they didn't have a brain. They had these clusters of ganglia that would um, dictate movement, uh, eating patterns, things like that. 
So it wasn't until um, uh, evolution dictated that there was a there was a growth of a spine, and that happened from from early on as well. Uh, that um, the central nervous system was was uh, formed. So in fact, the peripheral nervous system really existed before the central nervous system, which is which is an interesting evolutionary um, incident. And that's why we decided to start the book that way because it emphasizes that the periphery, the peripheral nervous system, has a lot of important precedence in terms of um, uh, evolution. If you look at like the average neuron in the peripheral nervous system compared to the average neuron in the central nervous system, are there any differences between them in terms of their their cellular anatomy, the structure of the cells, or in terms of their neurophysiology? There are some differences. You know, we we talk about sensory neurons, and they have what's called a bipolar organization. They have two processes that emanate from the the cell body. Uh, And there's organization like that in the central nervous system, but it's very unique among sensory neurons. To have this kind of structure, in terms of proteins and um, the the uh, function of ion channels of other molecules, there are very there are a lot of similarities. There are there are some differences, but there are a lot of similarities. One of the major differences between the central and and the uh, peripheral nerves is um, myelin, the covering of of uh, nerve cells and the constituents of uh, myelin in the central nervous system are quite different from the periphery in fact the cells that make myelin myelin is a is a coating uh over the the processes the axons of, of nerve cells the uh the myelin is made by different cell types by not from the neuron but by glial cells, and the glial cells are very different. In the periphery, uh, there's what's called Schwann cells, which cover the nerve, whereas in the central nervous system, it's a different cell type. It's called an oligodendrocyte, and those cells uh, really uh, make the same type of myelin, but they have uh, a different structure, slightly different structure, in that the oligodendrocyte can actually myelinate multiple nerve cells, whereas the Schwann cell only myelinates one one nerve cell. So that's a big difference between the two systems, that the uh, covering of the nerve uh, is, is made by different cells and has different proteins. And, you know, I want to spend some time talking about the enteric nervous system and gut-brain interactions um, you've got an entire chapter in the book about this, and it's it's sort of a hot topic in research in recent years. Um, chapter two starts off by saying that scientists are cautiously beginning to question the view that the brain is the sole and absolute ruler over the body. The gut not only possesses an unimaginable number of nerves, those nerves are unimaginably different from the rest of the body. The gut commands an entire fleet of signaling substances, nerve insulation materials, and ways of connecting. And so can you unpack that for us and in particular start to talk about the ways that nerves in the gut can be 
unimaginably different from the rest of the body? Sure, that's a very good question. Uh, it turns out that there hasn't been as much research about the enteric nervous system, that is the nerves that innervate the gut and the intestines. Um, but they have this similar ways of communication. That is, you use uh, neurotransmitters in both the central and the, and the enteric systems. Uh, and the big difference, I think, is that the uh, environment of the gut is quite different than from the brain. The environment of the gut has huge numbers of immune cells that are that are sitting there sort of sampling what's going through the gut and those immune cells can can cause uh good things and also bad things that to happen but they have to interact with the uh, neurons that are present uh that surround the gut so that's a big uh area of research right now uh, after years of, I think, neglect, uh, I think people weren't so interested in what happens in the, in the periphery. Uh, there are a couple groups, one at Columbia, by Gershon, uh, and, and several other groups that worked on the enteric nervous system, uh, years before anybody noticed. But it turns out that they're very important and there are ways that actions in the periphery can influence uh, other organs and also the brain. And that's that's why uh, there's a huge amount of it, research going on right now on how um, bacteria in the, in the gut and the nerve cells, the enteric system, and the immune system are, are interacting. And, you know, you say in the book that there are are even brain diseases or things that we think of as primarily brain diseases that have their origins in the gut. So, so what are some examples and lines of evidence that can support the claim that at least some brain diseases have their origins in the gut? Yeah, I think this is an area that has enormous uh, attention, but there's also uh, uh, some controversy. In other words, controversy comes that we don't have a complete picture of how these brain diseases might be influenced by things in the gut. But I can give you a couple examples uh, that the evidence is getting stronger and stronger. Um, and that is um, there are proteins that are disease proteins in the brain. And one of them is called alpha-synuclein. It's very well established that alpha-synuclein uh, is elevated in uh, Parkinson's disease and many other diseases that involve um, aggregations called Lewy bodies. And uh, these diseases are, are um, pretty devastating in that uh, they really cause a lot of problems. We don't know how they do it, but they, they do cause problems. And one of the theories, and it's not proven uh, convincingly, but one of the theories is that this uh, alpha-synuclein protein may actually travel from the periphery, maybe even from the gut, into the brain. And there is some some very interesting evidence that this might happen. It's a little provocative because you're saying a protein can go from one place to another long distance and cause the disease. 
But this is uh, an idea that um, is being tested right now. And there is some evidence that it might happen, but it, it, it's not proven yet. So that's why there's all this interest. Yeah, the other issue is that we know um, the gut has, each person's gut has at least a thousand different bacteria. And so another area of research is to figure out which of these bacteria might be involved in a, in a disease, like a brain disease. And that's going to take a lot of work. You, you have to basically identify each one of these species and test whether they're the culprit in, in a brain disease. But this is what a lot of the research is uh, right now. And uh, there's a lot of excitement because people think that even psychiatric diseases might be influenced by your content in your, in your gut, that is the bacteria in your gut. How that happens, we don't know. One theory is that um, your bacteria are making small molecules, and these small molecules might be able to migrate all over the body and cause and cause problems. Uh, so that's a that's a uh, an idea that many people are working on. They're trying to identify these metabolites or small molecules that might be linked to um, to disease. So I think we're in our infancy about studying this, but it's it's caused a lot of excitement because um, of preliminary data that um, indicates that there might be a link. One, one preliminary data I just mentioned is uh, a few years ago, people were using antibiotics to kill off all the bacteria in your gut or in the gut of a mouse. And they saw that um, the incidence of uh, Alzheimer's disease uh, in the mouse uh, or other diseases uh, went down. Hmm. Uh, so this is published published observations. The problem is we don't know uh, if this is just the correlation. You get rid of bacteria and, and you have a better environment for for the brain disease to to reside. Or, or what the mechanism is. We have no idea what the mechanism is, but it is a link between bacteria in the gut and, uh, and disease, brain disease. Hmm. Yeah, so I guess that's, it sounds like we don't really know what's going on there. We don't know if where the, the arrows of cause and effect lie, but there are these weird and intriguing correlations that people have seen where you, know, you right. give an animal antibiotics, which is going to kill bacteria, and there's going to be lots of downstream effects for that. But then you get these phenotypes like decreases or changes in diseases of the brain or things that we wouldn't have imagined or, or naturally thought would be linked to the presence or absence of, of microbes elsewhere in the body. Another kind of experiment, again, it's, it's, um, it's a bit of a correlation. Uh, there's, a, there's a cranial nerve called the vagus nerve that really extends from the bottom of the brain throughout your body it hits a lot of organ organs, including the gut. And um, as you may know, uh, people do get uh, operations where they where they cut the vagus nerve. They they basically inter interfere with the vagus nerve. And in patients that have this operation, they find that uh, the incidence of certain diseases like Parkinson's is really much lower. Hmm. So that's really intriguing because a lot of uh, materials pass 
up and down the vagus curve. And again, it's a it's a object of a lot of research right now. That is, what is going up and down? Is it uh, metabolites or bacteria or what kind of substances? But the idea is that you you have this highway of information going back and forth between the brain and and the periphery. And um, if you interrupt that, it may be may be better in the case of a, of a disorder like uh, brain disease. In hmm. the vagus nerve, um, can we talk a little bit more about that? Talk about like how big it is and exactly what it's innervating outside of the yeah, CNS. It's, it's innervating many organs, um, and um, th- there's a there's a nice diagram in the in the book from a published article uh, that shows that the vagus nerve hits many of the organs, uh, the liver, the stomach. Uh, and it's mostly parasympathetic. It's sort of a break on things. So um, uh, there, there are a number of groups that are uh, that are working very hard to to understand uh, what's going on in the vagus nerve. In fact, a lot of therapies are being proposed to take advantage of this vagus nerve, which is one of the longest nerves in in the body. Hmm. And so, and based on what you said before, it sounds like you know, these cranial nerves, things like the vagus nerve, they have their cell bodies in the CNS, they reach out into the periphery, they touch organs and, and other parts of the body. And they're not only sending communication in the form of like electrical nerve signals back and forth between the CNS and the periphery, but these are big cells and and people are chasing the idea that maybe they act as like like a like a tube, a physical tube and and molecules from the microbiome or from somewhere else might be able to get in and shuttle into and out of the CNS via something like the vagus nerve. Right. It could be likened to a gatekeeper of sorts because it's it's going both to the brain and away from the brain. Um, so so there are a lot of possibilities here. And again, because of the number of bacteria that you have to consider, the immune system as well, as well as the nervous system, it's a, it's a complicated... Uh, uh, project to, to look at this, but I think there's an enormous interest right now in um, delineating uh, some of the events that go on. And what, um, this is going to be kind of a vague question, but I think it's an important area to, to consider for people. Um, obviously, we often take antibiotics on purpose. You know, we get sick, we go to the doctor. Um, sometimes we're prescribed antibiotics because we have a bacterial infection. Sometimes people are given antibiotics even when it's not a bacterial infection. Um, you know, I was just at a friend's house yesterday and they've got antibacterial soap in the sink and there, there's antibacterial stuff all over the place, basically, that we've put there. And so today in, in modern society, we're exposed to antibiotics probably at levels much higher than than any time in, in human history. Um, do we know anything about what this exposure to antibiotics is doing to our microbiome and to the extent to which that's good or bad? That's a very good question. I, I think um, you could probably find any result that uh, you're looking for right now because uh, because the antibiotics, uh, they are very powerful, uh, but they're very, there are many bacteria that uh, need to be characterized. Uh, but now with all the Techniques and DNA sequencing and and um, 
and also proteomic type of uh, analysis, I think we'll have a better idea of which bacteria are the are the culprits here. Um, and I, I think there's a huge amount of um, data that's coming out now from a number of labs that try to address this issue. So in the in the experiments I mentioned before, where antibiotics were treating um, mice that had that had programmed uh, Alzheimer's disease, um, I don't think I haven't seen anything recently, ex except for the result that uh, you can diminish the, the level of uh, disease by getting rid of uh, bacteria, but we don't know which bacteria, we don't know what the what the real mechanism is. But I think this is what people are working on right now. Are there any examples in humans of antibiotics being associated with either an increase or a decrease in, in different conditions? Yeah, there's... Um, there are a number of intestinal uh, problems that that have been uh, identified that really depend on uh, the bacterial composition. And um, I'm sure you, the audience has heard of probiotic uh, measures to try to uh, diminish the effects on uh, intestinal diseases of this kind. So, uh, this is this is an area that has been studied uh, quite a bit in the, in the in the past, but sort of without considering what the nervous system is doing, and also considering what the immune system is doing. Uh, so you have you have these three parties that are interacting in the periphery, and they're large they're large constituents, and they have uh, powerful effects, particularly the immune system. But the three parties uh, have to balance each other in order to have, you know, a healthy system. So it's it's complicated, but I think it's going to be um, studied and and uh, and reasonable ideas will come from this. And, so and there, you know, there are now new departments of uh, medical schools that uh, are concentrating on the microbiome or the bacteria. Mm -hmm. So it's a, big, it's a big area now. And, um, you know, to what extent, you know, because you see probiotics and prebiotics all over the place now. Um, lots of foods are marketed now as having prebiotics, which basically just means they contain fiber. Um, there's all kinds of probiotic supplements out there with all different kinds of bacteria. Um, to what extent does that stuff actually work? And does it require having a certain dietary composition? Is it only going to work if you sort of deplete your gut microbiome first to make room for new bacteria? Um, how much of this stuff is actually going to have some effect on the gut microbiome of a, of a human who goes out and buys these things? Yeah, those are all very good questions. And uh, I'm not enough of an expert in this area. <laughs> of nutrition and food to, to know, but I, I'm sure these are uh, issues that have to be worked out. And, you know, to do a clinical trial on something like this uh, takes a lot of uh, resources. So we just have to wait and see what, uh, what uh, these various uh, biotics uh, are, are telling us. But I think, I think that's, um, 
that's something that's being done right now. We don't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a chapter in the book all about pain. Um, and obviously the peripheral nervous system is going to be involved in pain sensation. Um, so can you give us just like a basic sense of how pain is detected in the peripheral nervous system, you know, how it's sensed and then how it's like relayed to the brain for us to actually then have a conscious perception of pain? Sure. Um, there've been some big advances in this area. I mean, everybody's interested in, in the mechanism of pain. Uh, but down to the molecular level, this has been uh, uh, the subject of several breakthroughs. Uh, one breakthrough is the identification of a gene that um, senses temperature and pain. It's called a trip channel, and it was discovered by David Julius a number of years ago. He's at the uh, University of California in San Francisco. And the second type of um, sensor is uh, a mechanical sensor. It's called piezo. And this was discovered by Artem Kataputian, uh just a few years ago. Both of them um, got the Nobel Prize two years ago in medicine because it was realized that these molecules could explain a lot of uh, features of pain and how the pain is processed. So most of these molecules are found again in the periphery uh, from sensory neurons and also the mechanical sensors can be in many different types of cells. So the mechanical sensors actually sense um, pressure and um, mechanical action. And they're very large proteins that are found uh, in the periphery. Uh, and they're very important in a lot of different disorders. So when, when uh, you have uh, heat or some kind of perturbations, pain, uh, these sensory neurons or mechanical sensors usually uh, located in, in the epidermis or the skin, uh, they connect with uh, neurons that uh, go to the spinal cord and into the central nervous system, where much of the processing of the information goes on. But the initial, the initial signal is usually from the periphery. That's why the peripheral nervous system is quite important. And, uh, you know, a lot of the treatments for pain uh, are really targeting not the periphery, they're targeting uh, the central nervous system. And so there's a lot to be learned from uh, some of the molecules that, that have been discovered. The, the trip molecule is one of many trip molecules that are found. And the piezo or the mechanical sensation uh, also has several different family members. So um, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how these, um, these uh, networks of nerves in the peripheral nervous system integrate their information into the brain and process the information. Um, so I think it's, it's really advanced significantly in the last few years. Uh, I mean, pain has been studied for centuries. Um, and of course, there are a lot of uh, treatments for pain. We understand that. Interestingly enough, in the brain, there are no sensory neurons that detect pain. So 
as as you may know, you know, you can have surgery in your in your in your brain and uh, not feel any pain. At least at least uh, interior of the brain. So there's still a lot to be learned, and um, of course, many people regard pain as sort of a warning warning signal. So it's not something you want to get rid of. It's something that is very useful to tell you uh, that something's wrong. So, so that's there's a, two aspects of pain that um, that are very important, um, and and there's a tremendous amount of research that's going on right now. And can you talk a little bit more about these trip channels and what they're sensing? You said that there's multiple flavors of this protein. What what kinds of stimuli are they tuned to detect specifically? Yeah. So one thing, uh, one uh, aspect of trip channels is that um, they can differ in sensing temperature. Uh, and there are trip channels that sense cold temperature versus very, very hot temperature versus medium temperature. Mm. So uh, the original observation for identifying trip channels is that there is a pepper called capsaicin that binds to these trip channels. That's how they were originally discovered. Mm. So the hot, hot red peppers contain an ingredient, a small molecule that interacts with the trip channel. Um, and and so it's not only uh, temperature, but it's also related to pain uh, that these channels uh, receive the information. I see. So is that why, like, when when we we talk about a spicy food being hot, it's because they contain a small molecule that opens up specific trip channels that also literally open up in response to hot temperature. That's right. That's right. So it's pretty amazing if you think about it that a molecule like that can sense temperatures, say, from uh, 35 to 45 degrees centigrade, but not detect other temperatures. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable property. Um, there are other channels uh, that have been discovered recently that are involved in itch. So itch is also related to pain because if you have a strong itch you want to get rid of it uh, by scratching and those involve different kinds of channels um, which are not very well studied but, but indicate that these channels which span the membrane and uh, receive and transmit ions through the cell uh, they really are very specific and they're specific for the cells that uh, see the see the um, small molecule and also temperature so it's a it's a big uh, discovery of these um, small molecules and the and the um, and the agents that that um, regulate the channels and you know another thing you talk about in the book and that you've studied you mentioned this earlier are these things called the glial cells and there's different types um, in the CNS, in the periphery, um, and they're involved in things like, you know, wrapping the axons of neurons with the, the fatty insulation called myelin that helps them conduct uh, to send signals faster, basically. 
Um, what are so, can you go back over like what, what are the glial cells in the periphery and what are some examples of like neurodegenerative diseases that involve this part of the peripheral nervous system? Yes, that's a, that's a very good um, question. Um, the periphery has one major uh, glial cell, among others. Uh, it's called the Schwann cell. It was uh, named after Theodore Schwann, who discovered this cell actually 200 years ago. And the Schwann cell is quite different from the cell in the brain that does the same thing, which I mentioned is the oligodendrocyte. Um, the Schwann cell is uh, very amenable to keeping neurons alive in the periphery. They make a lot of growth factors, a lot of substances that keep neurons alive, and they also facilitate regeneration in the peripheral nervous system. Very important. Whereas in the central nervous system, uh, the glial cell there is usually inhibitory to regeneration. So it's a big difference in glial cells. Uh, and this was just discovered in 30, 40 years ago. Um, the main question is why, why is it difficult for the spinal cord and the brain to regenerate uh, as opposed to the peripheral nervous system? And it, it, it came down to studying glial cells because they uh, make a lot of substances that either uh, inhibit or promote regeneration. So they're very important cells. And they also, quite recently, um, have been found to provide nutrients to, to neurons. So they're very important. They also uh, pick up or take up uh, uh, neurotransmitters or garbage that's made by the neuron. So uh, they become very, very important. And the other thing that's important about glial cells is they vastly outnumber the nerve cells. So there are a lot of glial cells. And uh, in the past, people recognize they're very important, but all the attention is on nerve cells because they do the, the learning and memory, the plasticity, everything. So it's only recently that there's been a huge amount of attention on glial cells. Hmm. And so you said regeneration. So to what extent can regeneration actually happen in neurons in the peripheral nervous system? And, and when you say regeneration, do you mean neurons can die and be replaced by brand new neurons? Or do you mean that you know individual connections or processes can degenerate and then regenerate? Yeah, we're, we're talking about um, cells that um, have, have a, a break in the, in the axon or in the, in the process and eventually can grow back the, the process. And that happens mo much better in the periphery than in the CNS. Hmm. So I'm sure you, you've been aware of all the attention to spinal cord injury, the fact that it's very difficult to regain uh, your movement after a severe spinal cord injury, like the one that Christopher Reeve had. Mm. And that's still true. Um, and whereas in the periphery, if you have an injury like that, it's it's a little better uh, prognosis to, to uh, overcome uh, the injury. 
So what it says is that the environment in the periphery is a little bit better along with the glial cells than in the central nervous system. And I've often wondered why why would you set up the nervous system in this way that one part is is uh, is uh, amenable to regeneration and the other the other part the brain uh, doesn't have that. And I've asked a lot of people this question, you know, why 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 do we have this system? Uh, one explanation is that in the brain it's pretty hardwired by the time you're you're an adult you're, you're pretty well the network is pretty hardwired and you don't want any mistakes in that so there, there are mechanisms to keep brain cells sort of uh stable in the periphery there's a little more room for uh for uh, an injury to to be um to be dealt with so I don't know if that's that's the best explanation for why there's a big difference, but there are these big differences. And uh, one of the experiments that was done to show that the environment's very important is uh, was an experiment that was done by Albert Aguayo about uh, 30, 40 years ago, where he put a bridge of Schwann cells uh, on top of the spinal cord. And uh, he could show that spinal nerves could grow into the uh, into the uh, swan cell uh, bridge that was made. So that that really said a lot of things. It said that those cells in the brain and the in the spinal cord have the capacity to grow or to regenerate, but it's the environment that's very important. Mm. So it's right. not that the neurons are intrinsically limited in the CNS from regenerating. It's that they don't have Schwann cells and or other things that are also in the CNS that are actually stimulating them to regenerate. And this was just realized, let me think about this. Uh, yeah, maybe 50 years ago, that experiment was a very important experiment. And then since then, the race has been on to figure out what things are inhibitory in the central nervous system. And there are a lot of molecules there that that uh, block regeneration or growth. Mm -hmm. so, well, what would be like an example of some type of like injury in a human being that has some nerve damage where you can get um, most or all of the damage uh, uh, reversed by regeneration? Yeah, there. Sorry, there are. Um, some injuries um, in the periphery. For instance, I know there, there are some hand surgeons that deal with um, problems uh, of injury in the, in the hand where, where they, they can find uh, after uh, surgery or some treatment that those nerves can reconnect and, um, and uh, be normal. Um, so there, there are instances like that, that that have been studied. There are a lot of genetic diseases where the periphery is affected, either in the muscle or in the nerve. Um, and those things have the potential of um, uh, having treatments that, that, that would help much, much better than, than in the CNS. Mm -hmm.
Um, another topic that's interesting to think about with the peripheral nervous system is uh, something like exercise. And so obviously the peripheral nervous system is going to be involved in like doing the exercise because, because the neurons are going to control how, how the muscles are contracting and things like this. But you know, beyond that, what are some of the ways that exercise can stimulate the, the peripheral nervous system that induce important changes in the central nervous system that you know, you know, end up influence, influencing things like reward and motivation centers in the brain? Is that, is that an area that's being studied at all? How you know, the movement of the body in the context of exercise you know, is going to affect the brain via what's going on in the right. periphery? Yeah, we've been interested in this in this problem, but through a different kind of angle, we've been interested in some of these growth factors that are made uh, in response to exercise. So these are not endorphins; they're they're factors that keep the nervous system healthy. And we know from many experiments uh, in animals and also humans that when you exercise, you you make increased levels of these growth factors. And as I said, they, they help the neurons or nervous system to be more healthy. But these growth factors, and one of them is called nerve growth factor, the other one's called brain-derived nerve trophic factor, they also enhance plasticity. And what, but, but what I mean is, is that they can change uh, the way you, uh, the way you think and the, and they can, enhance your learning and memory properties. So we've been interested in how these growth factors are working, especially after exercise, because it's very clear if you run, if you run for a half hour or uh, you, you, you do other um, exercises uh, where you're, you're learning something new, that growth factors go way up mm. in the CNS and also in the periphery. Uh, and we and others have been trying to figure out, well, how does that work? You know, how, what's going on? And I'll tell you one example. There, there are many uh, ways that this could, this could happen. We know when you exercise a lot, and this was animal experiments, uh, your liver starts, uh, you, you start using a lot of uh, sugar and uh, glycogen and those kind of resources. Mm -hmm. But if you exercise a lot, your liver starts also uh, metabolizing lipids. Mm. This has been known for a long time. Uh, and and the, the products of these lipids are called ketone bodies. They're mm. small molecules, they're tiny molecules. And we know when you exercise, you make uh, ketone bodies. You also make ketone bodies when you fast. So mm. fast, it's almost the same as if you're exercising. I see. So is the is the sort of unifying thing there, you know, the the liver's first gonna use glycogen stores, it's gonna use glucose. So basically the carbs that are in your body right now and and the glycogen, the essentially the carbs that you've stored up. And only after that runs out, you start metabolizing these lipids to make ketone bodies that happens both if you exercise a lot and you run out of the carbs and then you need to get the energy from somewhere else but also fasting in particular low carb fasting right i see so uh we were intrigued by this i mean we weren't doing metabolic experiments but we we realized that these ketone bodies uh can actually cross the blood-brain barrier and get mm -hmm. into the brain and one of these ketone bodies, which is called beta-hydroxybutyrate, 
Uh, it's been studied um, by many groups, more in, in the endocrinology field, um, can turn on and off genes in the brain. Hmm. We this out. Uh, in fact, it's pretty well established that, that it can happen. And so we tested whether BDNF, this growth factor I mentioned, was affected by this ketone body. And in fact, the ketone body can turn on the BDNF gene. So you get higher levels of BDNF. And we, we showed that in, in the in the brains of these animals that were they were running a long, a long time, a week uh, in some cases, even more than a week. So we think that there are ways where exercise can change the metabolism such that small molecules can be made to change the expression of genes that are very important for one's health. Mm-hmm. There are other molecules that have been found too that that um, enhance um, the health of an individual. Hmm. So a number of years ago, uh, a scientist at the Salk Institute sort of proposed that if you can find all these molecules that are good for you, maybe you can make a pill that would be an exercise pill that would allow you to get the benefits of exercise without even exercising. Now that hasn't happened, but it's sort of a pipe dream of some people that if you can identify these key molecules, that maybe you could um, generate uh, a treatment for um, uh, that would enhance uh, uh, your your ability to uh, to uh, get the benefits of exercise. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, an interesting area to think about here is, you know, connecting what you just told us about exercise and its metabolic effects and the downstream effects that has on, on plasticity, right? So, so if you start fasting and or exercising enough or in a certain way, you can start metabolizing lipids instead of just sugars and carbohydrates that can lead to production of things like beta hydroxybutyrate, ketone bodies that you mentioned, those can get into the brain. They can change gene expression and increase things like BDNF, which are involved in neuroplasticity. And so one of the things this makes me think about is, you know, this could be why just getting, you're changing your diet and or exercising can actually have the side effect, so to speak, of helping or facilitating the treatment of say psychiatric disease. So just, you know, if someone has depression, say um, at some level, what they need to do is rewire their brain. And right. so, you know, higher BDNF, a more facilitatory uh, plastic environment is going to help them do that. And so it would make sense that, you know, changing your metabolism via diet or exercise could then actually help um, help you change your brain, so to speak. And a key part of this is uh, changing your routine. I think that's very important. Mm. Uh the brain and the nervous system, we think, craves novelty. It likes novelty. It likes something new. So, you know, when you travel, uh, even though traveling is is kind of a mess now, it's very crowded. It's, uh, you know, you have planes that are canceled all the time. But you never come back from a trip and feel depressed. <laughs> Why is that? With all the problems of traveling. It's because you've been exposed to a lot of new uh, scenes, new sights. And I think that's good for your nervous system. 
to get that change, to see, to experience something new. So what you mentioned about, you know, having some changes, I think it's very important, uh, very important to keep healthy. And, and I think as you grow older, I've noticed with my family, you don't tend to want to do things anymore. You want to just sit down and watch TV, which is the last thing, which is bad for you. So I think having some activity, it could be exercise, it could be, you know, learning a new language or uh, doing something different is is very healthy throughout one's lifetime. I see. So, so just raw novelty, going to a new, in whatever form that, that, takes that will have a tendency to increase things like bdnf and facilitate yeah. plasticity yeah. and things like that yeah. Yeah. so i can tell you there there are um groups here in new york that uh hold classes in dancing one of the groups is a, a dance company called mark morris and there, there are many groups now and they they enlist parkinson's uh patients to go to these dance classes and their mood is so much better afterwards and their movements are better they're not mm -hmm. as uh, you know they don't have the tremor as bad a tremor as possible so we think that the dancing the the sort of exercise uh, which is new activity i think really helps the nervous system and it helps uh, at least counteract some of the effects of a disease of that kind a movement disorder. Mm -hmm. So uh, the same thing with music. I think I've heard of instances where listening to music really is uh, therapeutic to some of these disorders. So again, it's it's uh, encountering encountering something new, something that's stimulating, that is helpful. And you know, you've mentioned Parkinson's a couple times. Um, so maybe that's an example, but I wanted to ask you if there are examples of neurodegenerative or psychiatric diseases that we, we normally think of as diseases of the central nervous system, which either have their origins in the peripheral nervous system or have a significant portion of their symptoms originating from stuff going on in the periphery that we have historically not understood or, or underappreciated. Yeah, this idea is something uh, that's written in the book. Uh, it sort of got me stimulated about uh, writing some of the book. Uh, and it comes from observations that were made many years ago. In terms of Parkinson's, we know uh, it was 200 years ago that a physician named James Parkinson observed people outside his, his window in, in London who walked by and he noticed that uh, it was only six or seven patients, subjects, uh, developing a tremor, a really bad tremor. But he took a lot of notes and he realized that there were a lot of things before the tremor came about. Uh, one of them is pain. Another one is sleep. Sleep was disrupted. And the other thing uh, involving the digestive system is constipation. So when I've talked to a lot of physicians that see Parkinson's patients, they say, oh, yeah, we see a majority of people uh, with constipation problems. So that tells me there must be something going on in the gut that, that's, uh, that's not working well. 
And again, this is an area that has not been really studied that much, but it really suggests there are symptoms that happen well before the tremors that um, are characteristic of, of, of the disease. Um, and the other thing about Parkinson's disease is that it, the symptoms that develop, you see in many other peripheral diseases. Um, it's really surprising, even even autism. And uh, there's a there's a case, there's a rare genetic case called dysautonomia. It's dysautonomia, the autonomic systems really messed up. Uh, they have the same symptoms, same exact symptoms as Parkinson's. So people have not really looked at those pre-symptoms that much because it's difficult to study. I mean, it's hard to make a link, you know, with with the what's obviously a brain disease, you know, becomes a brain disease. But I think those symptoms are telling us something that that uh, we should follow up on. Hmm. And are there? So I know that like one example, it's pretty well known now that at least for certain forms of epilepsy, one way to treat treat them that, that can be highly effective for some people is the ketogenic diet. Um, are there examples of neurodegenerative diseases or psychiatric conditions where fasting or changing the diet in a specific way like that can have a clear impact? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I, I don't know in, in the human human case, but in, in some uh, animal studies, um, this was actually some time ago, where they administered ketone bodies to a mouse that developed Alzheimer's disease or a mouse that developed Huntington's disease. And they got improvement. Uh, they got uh, sort of protection against cell death in, in those models. Now, we don't know what the mechanism is, but I would bet that maybe those ketone bodies were turning on genes like BDNF, and that that gave a positive effect. And in epilepsy, that's another great example of where the diet can change um, one's condition, and the condition of epilepsy is pretty severe. Uh, and I, as I understand it, it, it does work pretty well in some in some populations of epilepsy patients, not everybody, but some. So that's, that really says there's something about um, the diet, probably the environment that, that, that's very important. And again, we don't know the mechanism. We don't know what the ketone bodies are actually doing in epilepsy that calms, calms hmm. the, the nervous system. Interesting. Um, is there anything else that you want to sort of any topics that you want to discuss that are in the book that you think are important that we missed or anything you want people to know to give them a sense of like what's in the book and, and how these things tie together? Well, there are a number of things. I mean, the book is actually written not as a textbook. Um, I, I could have written it as a science book, but I, I tried to get away from using a lot of terminology, a lot of acronyms because that, that can really confuse people. Um, so it's not written as a, as a science textbook, but it's written more as a historical account of how um, these problems were, were studied. 
So one thing I, I really liked about uh, doing this book is uh, reading about what people did 100 years ago, 200 years ago, with the same problems. And, you know, there's some very bright people uh, without the tools they have, we have today who made a lot of very important observations that, that I think uh, really changed uh, the way we think about uh, the periphery and also the central nervous system. So that's one thing uh, that the book has. And uh, there's also a, a section about plasticity and this has to do with what we just talked about, that is doing some new activities. How, how does that help people? Um, and, and, you know, although the plasticity is usually referring to things in the brain that change for the better, it, it also happens in the peripheral nervous system, we think. Not, not, not as many examples, but I think it happens. Mm-hmm. And the other topic that I, I sort of got into, but um, could use a little more work, is the basis of longevity. Mm. So if you think about it, your nervous system has to last a long time because nothing's going to replace it. And there is some neurogenesis that happens in the brain. That That's true. But for the most part, the nerves in your body when you're 60, 70, 80, 90 years old, are the same nerves that you're going to have uh, during your lifetime, and and how does that happen? How do, how how do these nerves stay alive for such a long time? Uh, and we know some molecules that are involved in this process. Uh, and one of the things that strikes me as very important is that a lot of these molecules are what we call growth factors. They're they're factors that help keep the body healthy, basically. But um, we also know in a lot of diseases, especially neurodegenerative diseases, like uh, Parkinson's, ALS, uh, Alzheimer's, of course, uh, these growth factors are diminished in their level. So as you grow older, your nerve growth factors are going down in levels. So how do you keep these neurons alive? I mean, this is this is something, or how do you keep them plastic? This is something I've been interested in uh, because I think there are other ways that the body can keep these neurons alive. That, that's the whole point. And we, don't, we know some of the factors that are involved, but I think there are many others that are very important. Mm-hmm. So what are- it's an important uh, observation because your nervous system doesn't have a mechanism to replace itself like other organs in your body. Mm -hmm. And so you're left with what you start with. And and there must be a lot of important mechanisms to keep those nerves um, going after decades. Mm -hmm. And that's something I I raised at the end of the book, but I didn't have a lot of answers. It's something we're interested in pursuing. Hmm. Whether it's maybe it's that topic, but uh, any other topics, are there one or two areas where you guys are doing experiments right now, or maybe you're starting to see some interesting results and you think we're going to make good progress in terms of the peripheral nervous system? Oh, yeah. Um, We're interested in how cells communicate with each other. Uh, So it's a very basic, fundamental 
topic. And we know that um, cells make all kinds of substances um, that can that can um, impact other cell types. So one one of the things we're doing is studying uh, a, a group of molecules that can um, that are secreted and can impact other cells. So by that I mean um, there's a there's a transactivation process. One of the molecules we've studied recently is a, is a very small, tiny peptide called oxytocin. And oxytocin has been around for a long time. It was discovered many years ago. And it was discovered to help uh, uh, the reproductive system. Uh, but now, recently, there's been enormous interest in how oxytocin is working in the brain because, uh, because of its social interaction properties. In fact, there have been many clinical trials in the last 10 years of trying to use oxytocin on autism to increase social interaction. And some of the studies work pretty well, some don't. So it's, it's, it's um, still, it's still um, unknown whether we could use this therapeutically. But we think oxytocin uh, can interact with other systems that can uh, trigger uh, more social interaction. So that's the idea. Uh, and we're trying to figure out, you know, who's communicating with who. Uh, and, and it's a small molecule. The, the way oxytocin is being uh, used, it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, but people use a technique called intranasal uh, application. So they, they, they do this in mice and also now in humans, where they uh, administer the, the small molecule through the nose and hope that it gets to the right place in the brain. And as I said, some studies look pretty good. Some are don't give the right results, you know. So, so we have a long ways to go. But um, this is an area I think that that uh, is going to be very promising for a lot of different psychiatric disorders. All right. Well, Dr. Moses Child, this has been fascinating. Um, do you want to remind people one last time uh, what the title of the book is and where they can find it? Yeah, it's called Periphery, and um, it's how the nervous system uh, can predict uh, what might happen in certain diseases. Um, it's it's on Amazon now. Uh, you can find it there. Uh, there's also another uh, book company that that features it. It's actually not released yet, quite, quite yet, but it should be released in another week or so. Okay, great. Well, um, Dr. Chow, thank you for your time. This was really interesting. And uh, good luck with the rest of your research. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Hey, everyone. I want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen, and it's a handheld, pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. 
Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D, in all capital letters, to get $50 off your Lumen device today. 